Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, the season six finale begins as we talk about Adams, Tennessee, and the legend of the Bell Witch. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. everyone and welcome to episode uh, what is it nine of season six which means it is the second to last episode of the season and that means we are digging in to the first part of uh, a two-part season finale 
which uh, we always do on the show at the end. Sometimes three part season finales, but most time they are two. And this season finale is, of course, Adams, Tennessee, and the story of the Bell Witch. A topic I have been looking forward to covering all season. I found a few good books to uh, do two episodes, to help me do two episodes on this topic. The one I'm going to be using mainly for tonight's episode is Our Family Trouble by Richard Williams Bell and N. Todd Cafey. And Richard Williams Bell was one of the sons of the Bell family that went through this whole, or was around when this whole old deal went on. And then, I'm not sure, but I'm assuming, because I think this was like a journal type of deal, and Kathy took these journal entries and all this stuff and kind of put it together and made a published work out of it. At least that's what it seems like, because it is written very modern-like. It's very easy to read. Whereas the other big, the other a famous book is The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch by Envy Ingram, which was written, I mean, they were both written after the events, kind of in the later 1800s, when everyone started to kind of die off, and they felt that they could share this story, and it wouldn't be, you know, disrespectful and all of that. And uh, the Ingram one is very much a tome of its time. It's, it's written in... What it, I mean, it sounds like it was written in the 1800s with the, you know, the word choices and the kind of the flamboyant writing and all of this. And it talks a lot about the area, gets into local history, which is all great and fine. But I kind of preferred, not kind of, I really did prefer uh, Our Family Trouble better because it was short and succinct and it cut out all the fat and it just got straight to the point. It was like 56 pages. You could read it in an hour. And it was just packed with all of the pertinent information, and it's all there. And I think it was, and it was a very easy to read book, and it was very easy to get the information and take notes on it. And so, I guess if I'm recommending between the two old timey books, uh, between those two old timey books, it's it's that one. It is uh, Our Family Trouble, and you can get on Kindle now for like a song. And I just want to know, I want to get into that book. Book corner for this episode. Buy that one. Or get them both. I mean, you can read them all in like a couple of hours, a few hours. They're very short, succinct books. But that one is a really just great way to get in, get out, and get all the information that you need about the Bell Witch. And I've got a couple other for the next episode. So I'm going to break down. Here's how the next two, this episode and the next episode are going to go. Tonight, I'm just going to concentrate on the story. I'm not going to get into, like, you know, theories and all of that. That is next episode. So this, tonight's episode story. Next episode, I want to go into the infamous Bell Witch Cave and what that was all about and kind of more modern stuff that's happening with the area. I want to, like I said, Bell Witch Cave is in there. I want to talk about uh, when John and Lucy Bell, these those were the parents, their tombstones were stolen in like the 40s or 50s and they brought them back because of course bad juju happened and they brought them back and they like threw them in a river or something and the guy who tried to bring them back had like a car accident and died the next day really want to get into that and see what that story is in its entirety i just heard like bits and pieces of it 
here and there. And then on that second episode, at the end of it, I'll come back and I'll discuss about like what this was, uh, what people think might have happened, theories abound about what the Bell Witch might have been, you know, things like that. And so that second episode, that's the last episode of the season. But tonight, let's just worry about the actual tale of the Bell Witch. And it is a tale with a lot of strings to pull. It's very fun. One little thing I do want to say before I get into it is that this happened in the early 1800s. Like I said, it really wasn't written about heavily until later. And I, you know, so the timeline is a little blurry. So I'm just preferencing that I might mention a couple of things that may have not happened in the exact order that they probably did. I mean, we don't have a lot of like hardcore dates. We know it had, we know we started here and we kind of know it ended here and everything in the middle kind of up in the air, but we'll get there. Just wanted to mention that in case I, you know, say something that other shows or other books or whatever kind of mentioned in a different order. The timeline, timeline can be a little loose here. So let's dig in to the story of the Bell Witch. Most people think nothing ever happens in Canada, but we know this is simply not true. Do you like myths, legends, or learning about some of Canada's greatest moments in history? Then this is the podcast for you. Join me, Canadian Girl, every two weeks as we travel around Canada exploring haunted places, searching for lost gold mines, trying to solve some true crime, and we even stop to observe historical events and people every now and again. Come on over to the channel today and join the crew by hitting that subscribe button. You don't want to miss out on our next adventure. That's Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, available on most podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and more. Before we get into tonight's topics, I want to take a minute and let you know that there is so much more small town secrets to enjoy. Check out the Patreon. There are one, two, and three dollar tiers of support with stuff like a shout out on the main show, exclusive buttons and stickers, MP3s to the music I create, also an ad slash promo free version of the main show as well as STS Backroads, the Patreon-only podcast that comes out in the off weeks, which means you'll get content every week, all in your own RSS feed. There is all of this and more. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash stscast or stscast.com and click on the support tab. And now, on with tonight's episode. Adams, Tennessee, is located in Robertson County in the northern part of the state, just past the Kentucky border. It is a small town with a population of around 600. It started out as Adams Station due to its location on the Red River and its proximity to part of the Kentucky Railroad. It was here 
that the Bell family settled in 1805. 12-ish years later, the legend of the Bell Witch began. John and his wife, Lucy Bell, moved their family of eight children to the small area known as Adams Station in the winter of 1805. They had decided to move more west, and at the time, this was about as far west as everybody went. After a year of hardship and failing crops, the family settled in nicely, and over the years, John and his family would amass a sizable farm and uh, were very liked and respected by the community. It would be in the spring of 1817, and that's that's what uh, the book, that's what the Our Family Trouble book says, 1817. A couple of other sources might say 1818, but like I said, timeline fuzzy. We know that it happened at least 1817, maybe in 1818. Odd things would start to boil around the farm. One day, while out tending to the farm, I believe he was checking corn, John Bell spotted a large black creature he thought to be a dog, but seemed to have the head of a rabbit. Bell shot at the creature, but all the creature did was vanish. Some days later, Drury Bell fired at what he thought was a large turkey. And Drury Bell is one of the older sons, by the way. But then, the bird took off. And while in the air, Drury saw that this bird was uh, no turkey. It was much, much too large, and it could also fly. And then there is Aberdeen Bell. Aberdeen for short. Who would also see a creature one night his way to visit his wife. Dean was a slave of one of the Bells during the time of the Bell Witch. Dean would spend nights with his wife, who was on another farm down the road. He encountered a large black dog one night. This dog was blocking his path. It was snarling and barking at him. Dean was armed with a trusty axe and decided to dispatch the dog before he could attack him. He swung the axe and buried it in the large beast's head, killing it. However, the next night, he encountered the creature again. Only this time, he said that it had two heads. And after that, Dean and many of the other slaves actually on the Bell Farm would not venture out after dark. Soon after John and Drury's strange animal sightings, the sounds began. The sound of a rat gnawing at a bedpost began in the room of the two youngest, Richard and Joel. The older brothers, John Jr. and Drury, were also awoken by the sound and proceeded to find the pest and try to take care of it. They found no rat, and by midnight, everyone in the house was awake and looking for said rat. No one, not John, Lucy, Betsy, or any of the brothers, found a trace of any creatures in the house. And I want to point out right now, he had eight children, but by this time, some of them had, you know, married and gone off and started their own lives. So at the time, I think there's only five of them in the house, and that is the two older brothers, John Jr. and Drury, uh, Betsy, who's in the middle, I think she was 12 or 13 at the time. And then there was uh, Richard, who wrote the book, he was kind of the second youngest and Joel who was the youngest and the other ones like Zadok and everyone had already 
moved out at this time. The noises would continue. Whenever the family slept, they would start. Sometimes it was the gnawing sound, but other sounds would reverberate through their cabin as well, such as the sound of smacking lips, scratching at the walls, the sound of someone gasping for air, heavy chains or stones falling on the second story floor. This was a two-story cabin. One night, the whole family was startled by a sound so loud they described it as a cannonball falling and rolling across the second story floor. This would go on for around a year, pestering the family whenever they tried to get a wink of sleep or sneak a nap in. But as time went on, more and more people found out about the odd noises and they soon changed. The noises gave away to voices. At first, it was just a faint whispering of what was described as an elderly lady. They could hear the voice faintly, but could not make out a word it was saying. And the more and more attention the voice got, the more and more pronounced it became. And this kind of really starts the ball rolling. It starts with noises. It grows the voices. It becomes kind of very physical, as we'll find out. It's very poltergeist-like. And the more energy the family poured into it, uh, you know, neighbors started coming around. They started telling neighbors and having people like, come over, help us try to figure this out. And then, of course, you're pouring all of this energy into this thing, and it starts to grow, and it starts to become uh, something else. This voice soon became the talk of the town, and visitors would start showing up at the Bell Farm to hear it. It was on one of these nights, with many witnesses present, that it spoke for the first time. It was presented with the question, Who are you, and what do you want? In which it answered, I am a spirit. I was once happy, but now have been disturbed. When asked why it was disturbed, it replied, I am the spirit of a person who was buried in the woods nearby, and the grave has been disturbed. My bones disinterred and scattered, and one of my teeth was lost under this house. I am here looking for my tooth. This sparked a memory in John Bell. Some years back, farmhands had discovered a burial mound while clearing some land. Bell instructed them to work around it and leave it be. Drury told a visiting friend at the time named Corbin Hall about it. Hall thought there might be relics in the mound and so Drury and Hall disturbed the grave but found nothing. Corbin, not wanting to leave empty-handed, brought a jawbone back with him to the house and later threw it up against the wall, uh, perhaps knocking a tooth loose. John Bell ended up finding the jawbone in a hallway and punished the boys for their behavior. John then had the farmhands replace the bones and uh, reinter everything and fix the burial mound. Remembering this, they searched under the home for a tooth, but none was found. They were only met with laughter from the spirit who told them that this was just a trick in order to make old Jack look like a fool. And old Jack is what the witch would refer to John Bell as. He would, it would always call him old Jack. And I want to take a second here and talk about the term witch. We're going to call it 
the Bell Witch. We're going to call it Kate Bat's Witch, or just the Witch every once in a while. And that is not Witch in the classical sense of the term. During this time, that was kind of a catch-all term for kind of anything paranormal. A spirit, a specter, a spook. I mean, and that just kind of stuck. I mean, at one point in time in the book, they even call it a goblin. So they just kind of, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have categories for stuff like this. So it was called a witch a lot of the times. Like I said, sometimes it was called a goblin. But for some reason, it wasn't called a ghost. It wasn't called a spirit. The family called it a spirit all the time. And that's what they preferred to use. But in the adults of history, it has gone down as the bell witch. Somehow that is stuck. And that is, that is kind of the origin of the name. It is not a witch in the traditional sense. Then the spirit, or the witch, said that it was actually an early immigrant who had died in the area and had buried treasure near the home. It said it would give the treasure location if Drury Bell and a, man, and a friend, Bennett Porter, would go and get the money. Also, the money was to go to Betsy Bell. Bell and Porter went to the location, and after moving a very large rock and digging a very deep six-foot hole, they found uh, no such treasure. This, of course, was just another trick. Third time, however, would be the charm. A friend of the Bells, named Reverend James Gunn, finally asked the creature a question of its origin so specific that it was compelled to give the correct answer. The entity said it was old Kate Batts' witch who had been sent to torment old Jack Bell out of his life. The Bats family did have a quarrel with the Bells, it would seem. Kate and her husband, Frederick, had come to Adam's Station at around the same time as the Bells. Over the years, Kate had become sort of an outcast and had become shunned by many in the town. But it was actually her brother-in-law, Benjamin Bats, who had dealings with John Bell. Ben Bats had entered in a land deal with John and later accused John Bell of charging him too much interest. The church that they both attended agreed that John Bell had broken church law and he was excommunicated from that church. And that is a big misconception. I think mainly sparred on by the movie An American Haunting, which proposes that it was all Kate Bats all the time. But it would seem here that if she did have anything to do with it, she did it on behalf of her brother-in-law. And uh, yes, that is kind of a theory as to what happened, but I have to I have to point that out now, or stuff maybe down the road won't make sense, such as where the name Kate came from. That is where the name came from. It was old Kate's wit, Kate Batch's witch. It referred to itself as Kate. So everyone just started calling the entity Kate as well. So I kind of had to get to that to get that out of the way. So could this all have been a curse brought on by Kate Bats to get revenge on John Bell? Maybe, but there is uh, so much more to the story. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. For a short time after this revelation, the witch seemed to split itself into four separate entities, each with its own personality and voice. There was Black Dog, who had a gruff but female voice, cussed like a sailor, but often acted as the peacekeeper among the other, as they had a tendency to uh, mainly just become rowdy and drunken and loud uh, far into the night. Then there was mathematics and psychography, who both had much more feminine voices. Lastly, there was Jerusalem, who acted and sounded like a timid little boy. For a few days, these entities would go on, yelling, singing, and conversing with other visitors to the Bell Farm before eventually just kind of fading away. And this is a really kind of interesting facet of the story. All of a sudden, you don't have one entity. You either have four entities, or perhaps it is the same thing, just pretending 
to be four things. And uh, which very odd names that don't make any sense, like mathematics, which is a thing, I get, but I don't know why it's a name. Uh, Psychography, I'm not even sure if that's like a real word. Hold on. Okay, so with the power of editing, I just looked it up on Google. If you search for it as it's spelled in the books, all you get is Bell Witch stuff. Uh, and then Google will give like, did you mean to spell it this way? And if you search for the way Google is suggesting it, then you just get a bunch of stuff on carp fishing. So that one is very interesting to me because it is not real at all, a real word, but it is made up to sound like something that might exist. And then Jerusalem, which actually is actually is the most fitting name. I mean, Black Dog and Jerusalem are really the only ones that make sense as names themselves. During this entire ordeal, the Bell Farm had many visitors, whom the family would house and feed without question. I mean, we're not talking just like friends and family. We're talking from people in town. We're talking from people outside of town. All the time. It was like the big story of the area, the big hubbub of the day. Many came just to experience the Bell Witch, but some came to actually try to help the family out of this ordeal. And they had some pretty notable visitors, such as General Andrew Jackson, who at the time was not yet president, but a lawyer who still lived nearby. He knew the Bells, as some of the family had served with him in the War of 1812. He arrived one day in a carriage complete with an entourage. Upon entering the town, the carriage became stuck in the mud and it took some time for them to get it out. Jackson proclaimed, by the eternal boys, this must be the Bell Witch. That night, a member of Jackson's party proclaimed that he was a witch tamer and produced a pistol complete with a silver bullet. This, he said, was the reason the witch had not shown. I guess they had had a pretty uh, boring night at the bell house. And this seems to be a repeating pattern whenever anyone shows up to kind of uh, get rid of it. The thing just goes quiet until it doesn't need to be quiet anymore. It was at that moment that the man began to scream and convulse in front of everyone before being kicked out the door by some unseen force. Jackson and his party left the next morning. One day, they were joined by Detective Williams, who had come to get to the bottom of it all. He spent the day at the Bell Farm, and having no activity, quickly grew indignant and accused John Bell of hoaxing the whole thing in order to make money, which, as far as I know, he never really took any money. He fed these people and housed them free whenever they would stop by. When word of this got to John Bell, he decided he was going to throw the man out. But it was at that moment that the witch spoke up and told him he should stay. Stay he did, and that night, while sleeping on the floor in a straw bed, Williams suddenly found himself pinned to the ground, being beaten by the entity itself. And of course, he left the next day as quickly as he could. But perhaps the most interesting character to visit the Bells during this time was Dr. Solomon Mize, who considered himself to be a witch doctor, as some would call him a wizard back in the day. He hailed from Simpson County, Kentucky, and he had no better luck. 
where one night he sat mixing a potion that he had made to deal with the witch. The bell witch flat out told him that he was doing everything all wrong. And this is a quote. If you were a witch doctor, you would know how to airify that mess so as to pass into an aeriform state and see the spirit that talks to you without asking such silly questions. Dr. Mize soon was fed up with the witch's insults, and he proclaimed that the entity knew much more than he did and left, supposedly with Kate, the witch, hounding him the whole way home. There was good reason for trying to find someone, anyone who could help. For as many people gathered around night after night to experience Kate, the family was being ever tormented. The witch made his hatred known for John Bell rather bluntly, declaring that it would kill him someday. And shortly after the voices started, John Bell began experiencing convulsions as well as a tightness in his mouth that he described like a stick stuck in his throat. At first, these bouts would come, and they would last for a day or two, and just like that, they would be gone. But as time went on, these attacks became more and more prevalent and lasted much longer. And this is something I kind of want to look into to see, like, what would have actually caused that. What would have caused, like, convulsions, uh, muscle twitches he had, and of course his tightness in his throat... And, you know, I've, I've seen a couple of things. There's a great documentary, a Small Towns Monster documentary, that I suggest everyone watch. There's a link in the show notes. It's called uh, The Mark of the Bell Witch. It is excellent. And in there, they kind of hinted that it had some sort of muscle disease, maybe some sort of nerve thing. It'd be really interesting to find out if that was an affliction. But I'll, I'll look into it. Maybe I can find something about it, and we'll throw it in the, in the next episode here. Betsy Bell was directly tormented by Kate. The entity would keep her up at night. It would pull her hair, tie her hair in knots, and slap her face constantly. There was even a time when Betsy seemed to be utterly possessed by something or someone. The witch would even try to interfere with her would-be marriage to a man named Joshua Gardner. It seemed the only person in the family that Kate really liked was John's wife, Lucy. And uh, it seemed to kind of be indifferent to everybody else. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure all the other kids got their own experiences, but it really concentrated on these three members. Kate would actually often dote over Lucy, singing hymns to her and bringing her fruit and other gifts. Kate even tended to her when she was sick by bringing her nuts and encouraging her to eat. Many witnesses one day observed uh, these nuts simply come out of thin air and even crack themselves open when Kate said, or not Kate, when Lucy said that she didn't have the strength to open them. And so imagine this going on for years, the voices, uh, you know, keeping everyone awake, the abuse, the slapping, the pulling of hair, all of that, and John Bell just being afflicted with this mysterious ailment, this mysterious disease that just got worse and worse as time went on, and then Lucy being treated like a queen. And I often wonder if this was like some sort of plot to try and turn 
John and Lucy against each other. You know, I'll make John hate me. I'll make Lucy love me. And then there'll be this conflict between them. But if that was the case, I don't think it ever was able to really uh, turn them quite against one another. Even just the company coming around and wanting to experience it and spending the night. Like, imagine the toll that would take on you if for like two or three years you just housed and fed all these people that just showed up at your doorstep whenever they wanted, you know, unannounced. It would be so annoying. It would it would it would run you ragged within a couple of years. So just imagine the toll that all of that would take on these people over the period of like two two or three years. But it would be the end of 1820 when things would come to a crescendo. In October, John and his son Richard Bell went out one day to separate all of the hawks. On their way back, John collapsed and began having convulsions that went on for what seemed like forever. They were so strong and prolonged that he uttered to Richard these words. Oh, my son, my son, not long will you have a father to wait on you so patiently. I cannot much longer survive these persecutions of this terrible thing. It is killing me by slow tortures, and I feel that the end is nigh. After the episode ended, John got back to his feet and said that he felt better. But this would be the last time he would ever leave the house. He spent the next few months bedridden as his condition grew worse. Then, on the morning of December 19th, John Bell would not wake up. He was alive, breathing, but just simply wouldn't wake up. He was unconscious. It was later that morning that John Jr. found a curious vial of a smoky-colored liquid among the medicine lined by John Sr.'s bed. No one could identify the substance, nor could they find out who had placed it there. The older brothers tested the liquid on a cat that they had found, and the cat died almost immediately. And then, by smelling it and John's breath together, a doctor determined that he had been given a considerable dose of this poison. John Bell died the next day. December 20th. It was said that at his funeral, the witch could be heard yelling from the trees in an attempt to do everything that it could to disturb his funeral service. Betsy would never marry Josh Gardner, and they would break off the marriage before her father died, and they would try again after his death, but to no avail. She would end up marrying another man in town that she knew named Richard Powell, Professor Richard Powell, and they would move to Mississippi in 1824. And I mentioned Richard Powell because we'll talk about him a little bit more in that second episode here. After the death of John Bell, Kate seemed to go away. But eight years later, she returned for just a couple of weeks. Lucy, Joel, and Richard were the only ones who remained in the house at the time. So just the mother and the two youngest sons are still here. They heard the familiar scratching and the other sounds that had started back in 1817. But this seemed to be all old Kate could conjure. 
And once again, like I said, after just a couple of weeks, she faded away. The five children who were still in the house during the time of the Bell Witch grew up and went on with their life. John Jr. would marry Elizabeth Gunn in 1828 and would go on to build his own home south of the original Bell House. He died of pneumonia on April 8, 1862. Drury Bell would never marry and spent his life a bachelor, supposedly afraid of the witch for the rest of his life. He died on January 1st, New Year's Day, 1865. Richard would go on to write a book about the experience titled Our Family Trouble, as I've mentioned. He would marry three times and died at the age of 46 in 1857. Joel, the youngest of the family, would eventually move to Springfield, Tennessee, which was just a few miles down the road, where he would live as a respected farmer until his death in 1890. Betsy would be widowed in 1848 after Richard Powell passed away. She rarely discussed the Bell Witch story with anyone other than her family. She would pass away on July 11th 1888. Lucy lived at the original homestead until her death in 1838. The house was used for a few years after her death to store grain and farm equipment before eventually being torn down. And that about does it. That is, from beginning to end, the story, the legend of the Bell Witch. And now that we've laid all that groundwork, uh, we'll continue it on in the next episode, like I said, in the Bell Witch Cave, getting some other stories about it, and kind of talk about what may have happened, what may have transpired. So that is the next episode, as I mentioned before. But let's take a little break. It's the middle of the show. It's intermission. Play some music, and I'll come back with uh, the local headlines to share with you all.
Okay. And the first story tonight is from LMT Online. This is out of Texas, written by Jorge Vela. And the headline reads, None other than La Llorona. Ghost sightings reported on Laredo's Mines Road. And there is a picture in this article that is interesting to take a look at. I'll talk about it maybe here at the end. Could it be that people traveling on Mines Road might expect to see a little more than traffic late at night? Recently on social media, many people passing through the area have reported seeing a ghost. These reported sightings have occurred within the same area, between Mines Road and farther Charles M. McNoe Park. The sightings went viral with a post by a local paranormal research group which asked people to share their stories, including several accounts of a lady in white. A woman dressed in a long white dress with loose dark hair, quietly walking with composure, looks as if she's sad or upset about something, described Ariana Villobos of what she saw. Villalobos said the scene was horrific and they did not want to get out of their vehicles. However, she said her encounter with the woman in white was a quiet one and she did not make any sounds as they passed on the road. The only time I saw her was once and it was late at night and she made us all scared to even come outside, Villalobos said. One other person who had recently traveled through the area said he captured an image of the apparent apparition. According to the witness, he did not see it during his regular travels, but as he got home after passing through the area, he noticed that a camera installed in his car captured an image of something that resembled the woman in white. And I believe that is the picture posted here. You can see it is on the side of the road because you can see the lines in the middle. And there's just kind of this big white shape on that side of the road, very close to the car. It's kind of intriguing. It seems large enough to be someone standing on the side of the road, but it might also just be like a bug really, really close to the camera. Uh, I don't know. Take a look at it and see what you think back here to the story. I was driving around 2 a.m. leaving a friend's house, Martin Godline said. So I was driving. I hadn't noticed what my camera had captured until after I reviewed the video. After checking his car camera for what it captured, he saw the image of an apparent entity all in white glowing on in his front door. According to him, he did not see anything while traveling down the road. The number of reported sightings has caused many paranormal research groups and other interested individuals to beg the question of what it is and how they can try and find out. There is definitely something going on here, but I do believe that this is none other than La Llorona, local paranormal investigator Egra Vega said. The fact that the sightings occur near Father McNobe and the river is right there shows you why there is happenings as these energies get attracted to water. According to Vega, most appearances tend to happen after it rains for about a week in the city. He said this is why he believes it is La Llorona. La Llorona is a good explanation due to the fact that she is wearing white. It seems sad and there is water, Vega said. However, the one thing that I don't understand is why she doesn't make a sound. Several people I have spoken with have said that the entity is very quiet and does not yell the classic Mihios thing when walking, nor nothing of that sort. This is written a little weird. La Llorona is a popular story of a ghost that mourns her drowned children near areas of water. 
which is very popular among Hispanic legends. The story was chronicled in The Curse of La Llorona, which was released in theaters nationwide in 2019. Aside from the woman in white, other people reported that the area is infested with other kinds of supernatural and ghost activity. One man suggested that it was the pandemic of a hundred years ago that is to blame. In the first flu pandemic in the 1900s, many people died here in Laredo, Alberto Garcia said. My great-grandmother lost two sets of twins, two girls and two boys. She and Grandpa moved to El Pico Ranch on Mines Road. She made masks and my grandpa sold milk in St. Peter's Park. According to Garcia, he believes he saw the spirits of various children in his old family's ranch, and he continues to believe that they are his grandmother's children or the spirits of other people that died during that time. Then one day, I go to visit the farm. As I left, fog and mist were all over. It got dark, Garcia said. As I was closing the gate, I heard some children giggling, and I saw a few faces in the shrubs of children. They looked pale. I believe these were the children that my great-grandma lost, and they knew me. It seemed like they were playing hide-and-seek. Every time I would go, I felt like they were watching me, since they were buried there on the farm. Despite the sightings, City of Laredo District what is that? Seven council member Vanessa Perez said she has not heard anything about the ghost sightings in the area she represents. The Laredo Police Department also said no reports have been filed on the matter. With a lack of concrete evidence, many people live and travel throughout the area want somebody to conduct a thorough investigation. I know a lot of people in Mines Road would like to know more, Villalobos said. Vega hopes he can soon get something going as he has gone several nights in the past week to try to find something to no avail. However, he hopes someone with better experience can do more. I do hope that I can get a team of several interested people to go with me or somebody with better equipment can go, and we can all form part of that expedition, Vegas said. There is something ongoing, as people are not just crazy or they are, uh, there is not mass hysteria, but unless we do something now, we might never know what or who it is. And our second story is a uh, kind of uh, a sequel in a trilogy of sightings. This is from CBSNews.com, written by Stephen Smith. Headline is Another Possible Jetpack Sighting Reported Near LAX. The Jetman is back. Yes, I know LA is not a small town, but I'm pretty sure I reported on both of these sightings last year of the mysterious jetpack guy near the airport. The Jetman is back. That's what an air traffic controller can be heard saying in the SkyWest flight after another possible jetpack sighting reported Wednesday evening near Los Angeles International Airport. The sighting comes after at least four pilots reported seeing a similar aerial mystery last year in the same area. A Boeing 747 pilot reported seeing an object that might have resembled a jetpack 15 miles east of LAX at 5,000 feet altitude almost a mile. A Federal Aviation Administration spokesperson said in a statement, out of an abundance of caution, air traffic controllers altered the pilots in the vicinity. In recordings obtained by CBS Los Angeles, air traffic control personnel can be, could be heard issuing a warning to pilots. And they kind of have it transcribed here. ATC, which is the traffic control. SkyWest 3626 use caution. The Jetman is back. Let me know if you see him. ATC, SkyWest 3626, 
Did you see the UFO? Pilot, we are looking, but we did not see Iron Man. ATC, Evergreen 8023, use caution. There was a report of a man in a jetpack around 5,000 feet in the vicinity of Los Angeles. And I kind of like that little back and forth. Yeah, they're making fun of it, but you get you get the feeling that uh, AT, like the control tower at SkyWest 3626, have a discussed the jetpack man before. Last year, a number of similar reports were made near the airport, prompting the FBI to investigate. In addition to the sightings near LAX, a flight school posted footage on Instagram of the possible jetpack spotted off the coast of the Palos Verdes Peninsula in December. And there's a picture over there. It is uh, two dots smushed together in front of some mountains. A report issued by the FBI said that the reported sightings were unlikely to involve an actual person with a jetpack. CBS News spokesperson Chris Van Cleve reported last year that there does not appear to be a jetpack on the market that could get someone to an elevation of roughly 3,000 feet and back to the ground safely. That would require a lot of fuel or a parachute. David Maiman, CEO of an LA-based LA jetpack aviation, told Van Cleve he was doubtful it was a jetpack. They'd run out of fuel. They'd use fuel too quickly, Maiman said, adding that the typical flight time for a jetpack is just five to ten minutes. If it's a real jetpack, it's noisy. People would have heard it take off and land. I mean, yeah, true, but people have been known to make some uh, weird things in their garage and not tell a lot of people about it. And our final story is uh, from WSBT. This is also out of California. Sheriff investigates reported ghost-like sighting in California mountain range. And this is by Shelby Rako. Coarse Gold, California. A family in California says they experienced a strange ghost-like sighting in, Madura County, in the Madura County mountains last week, prompting police to investigate further. Jake Gorba, his wife Victoria, and their three kids decided to take their four-wheeler up to Shut-Eye Peak on Wednesday. The family stopped to eat lunch, and then that's when the couple's three-year-old son, Caden, began talking to someone. He was just in our car, and he was pointing out to a certain spot in the meadow, said Victoria. Caden told his parents that there was a woman lying face down with her legs straight up in the air in a nearby meadow. According to Caden, the woman was unable to speak and move and needed help. Jake and Victoria checked out the meadow, but saw nothing. He kept saying, trust me, trust me, Mom, and I was like, I trust you, but you know I believe you 100%, said Victoria. The family was so spooked by what the three-year-old had so, had so adamantly shared that they decided to end their day early and head home. Then they posted about the strange occurrence on Facebook. Sandra Hughes had gone missing in that area in June of 2020. According to Victoria, her three-year-old's detailed description of the woman's hair and clothing was identical to the description of Hughes. He was very adamant that we needed to help her, and he described her down to blue hair. He said she has a black shirt, blue jeans, and blue hair. Mom, and that's the exact description of her when she went missing, said Victoria. Victoria says Caden was also able to identify the woman he'd seen in three out of the four photos of Hughes. Madura County Sheriff Corporal Chris Williams saw the Facebook post and contacted the family to further investigate. The corporal in charge of her case actually reached out to us on Facebook and was like, hey, 
we want more information and we want to bring you guys up there and see if you could point us in the direction, said Victoria. Williams had been looking into the Hughes' disappearance since the beginning of the investigation. On Thursday, two Madera County Sheriff's deputies traveled back up to the meadow with Jake and his son to investigate. The deputies found no new evidence and the case remains open. The four-wheeler that the family was traveling in when the whole spooky experience took place is now referred to as the Ghost Runner and is up for sale. The family says they will continue visiting different trails up in the mountains, but there are definitely, there are definitely some spots they won't stop at anymore. The Madura County Sheriff's Office confirmed that they did receive a report of a possible sighting. They went out to the location for any leads, but nothing new was found. And that has been this episode's local headline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And to round out the show, we have a couple of your small town secrets from the uh, old Reddit here. This first one is from user Brown-Eyed Medusa with a little UFO story to share. I can't quite understand this one myself, so maybe you guys can help. This was on the 11th of July, 2019. Me and my boyfriend, now husband, were camping in the mountains, very high up. Now this area is so high up and remote that there is virtually no light pollution, so you can see nearly every star in the sky when it's clear like it was that night. So we were just relaxing, staring at the stars, usually a romantic thing to do up in the mountains, when we started noticing the stars acting differently. They appeared to zigzag and go upward and almost play with one another, weaving near each other and away again in circular motions. I, I've heard that before in other UFO cases. We were just amazed by it all and couldn't take our eyes off the sky. This went on for a solid two to three hours. And that wasn't the strangest part though. 
Where we were camping, there is a clear view of an opening between two other mountains. At around 2 a.m., uh, maybe 3 a.m., I noticed this bright, very bright light between those mountains. So I nudged my partner to look over too. We were staring at this massive white, yellow looking star go upwards and quickly noticed it going towards us. My partner is a man that isn't easily scared and this really scared him, to the point he nearly broke his nose trying to hide fully in the tent with both of us screaming as this star, in quotation marks, just stopped right above us. When it was right above us, right before we both panicked, it seemed to have a diamond type shape and was super bright. But this wasn't even the strangest part. When we were in the tent, the light didn't shine through the tent. This thing didn't make a single noise. So no, it wasn't a drone or anything like that. It was far too big. And what seemed like seconds later, we were both so calm, looking at the stars again, like nothing happened until sunrise. If both of us didn't experience this, or if it was just one of us, I could try and make an excuse for it, but I can't. I can't explain it. And to top it all off, whenever I'm talking about it, or typing in this case, it feels like I'm lying and my partner feels the same way. Like it never happened. Like I'm making it up. And the more I try to remember about that night, the more we can't remember what I'm talking about, if you get me. Has anyone else experienced anything like this or have some answers? And uh, I would chime in and wonder if you guys had any missing time because the very interesting part to me is you experienced it you saw it it was there i also find it really interesting that it wouldn't shine through the fabric of the tent but and then all of a sudden you're just calm cool collected and everything's over and you can barely remember it and that just reeks to me of missing time and sometimes when that happens to people everything just kind of resets and it takes them a little bit to come back to those memories. So I would maybe maybe try to track down, see if you guys remember looking at your phones, looking at your watches, whatever, anytime during the night, and seeing if there's time in between when you saw it come near the tent and when everything was just kind of over that is just gone. Something to think about, and I'll link this in the show notes if, in case anyone else wants to jump on there and leave a comment. And our next story is from user Cinnamon Soy. And this one really, not so much was a story story. It was actually a, a response, a comment to another story. But I found theirs to be a very interesting. Our friend group was usually about nine people. But we had a sleepover and only five could make it. With my sister and me, we were seven. We decided it would be ballsy to, to take a walk at like 11 p.m. Because our house was super rural and our driveway was long and had two other neighbors down it. Our house was the first on the drive and it's about a third of a mile before we before you get to our house and then it's about a quarter of a mile to the next neighbor's house and maybe a thousand feet to the last house. The driveway is surrounded by thick woods and they told me that this is in rural West Virginia by the way. Uh, it looks like Ferngali in the spring. So it was safe, except for wild animals, but still creepy. So we went out with flashlights and our dog, and we were going along. Someone would duck into the woods and run ahead and pop out and scare us. You know, middle schoolers. 
and after a while, that got old, so we stopped and counted everyone. Eight. Two different people counted, and we made sure not to count ourselves twice. We all agreed that we were all there and that no one looked familiar. So we walked on and stopped once or twice to count again to discourage the jump scares. When we got within sight of the next neighbor's house, we decided to turn around. The neighbor's three dogs joined us. Rural living, this is normal. The dogs loved us, we loved the dogs too, and uh, they'd go home on their own. We counted before going back. Eight. When we were almost home, there was a feeling of someone not being there. So we counted. Seven. Someone was missing. We realized that A was missing, and I believe she is using an A in place of someone's name. The other girls were like, oh, she's just trying to scare us. Come on, let's leave, uh, let's leave her, and she'll come back. And they yelled that into the darkness. But I had this bad feeling. One of the other girls kind of did too. We got within sight of my house, which was on a little hill. I refused to go down until A was back with us. If we went down, I wouldn't be able to see the back. The others were like, no, let's go. But I turned and I heard a faint, help me. The other girl was concerned and heard it too. So we took off down the road toward it. We heard, help me again, and it did not sound like A at all. We saw a little light flashing in the dark to the side of the road, and there we found it, A passed out on the side of the road, leaves strewn over, over her and her flashlight in three pieces, all scattered in the leaves. She came to, and we brushed off the leaves and said she didn't call for help. She said she had gone off to jump out and scare us, but something white brushed past her as she tripped on some rocks and passed out. By this time, the other girls had caught up with us, and we all went back home in the house, and we were sitting around the dining room table. We counted seven. There were seven of us. We realized that we had been counting wrong. There was never eight, and we didn't even know who we were counting. But, but number eight, whomever it was, did not seem to stick out. And then I got a feeling of someone missing, something being wrong. Number eight was still with us, Somewhere in that rushing to get A, that extra person vanished. We were still thinking 8 was normal, since we were used to having at least that many friends get together, but 2 couldn't make it. So yeah, we never did figure out what happened. And uh, I always love little stories like that where, you know, it's the kind of, I don't know if it's like a doppelganger thing or just, yeah, there's we're all here, but oh yeah, wait, no, wait. This isn't right, and no one realizes it forever. I just thought that was a really great fleshed-out encounter. You don't really hear a lot of these kind of like extra-person things like that. So when they come up, I like to like to stumble upon them. So there you go, a couple of uh, real experiences, and uh, that has been your Small Town Secrets for episode 609. If you have a Small Town Secret to share, then there are many ways that you can get it to me best way, of course, is to go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the main page. There is an email form there to fill out, and uh, that will come right to me. While you're on stscast.com, make sure to check out uh, show notes for you know links and pictures to every episode of the show. There is also ways to support the show on there, links to the Patreon, PayPal donations, and uh, even merch that can be purchased, so you can grab yourself a t-shirt, 
a sticker, a coffee mug, all of that great stuff is found at stscast.com. The other way to get at me with your experience or whatever is just engage with me on social media. I am most active on Twitter, and that is at stscast.com. You can also find me on Instagram at stscast.gram. I am also on Facebook, and uh, like I said, it was hacked a few weeks ago, and I had to make a new page. So I'm still trying to get a couple more likes so that I can give it a name, like an at name, a username. But that is linked at the social links at the bottom of STScast as well, the new Facebook page. So you can get to it there and like it. Uh, if you do come across the old Facebook page, it's still out there. I just can't get to it to do anything with it. The only thing I can do is post to it uh, as just a person, as a normal person. I can't mod it in any way, shape, or form. But I can get in there with my new Facebook account and post on it. So I have posted a link in the old Facebook page that will take you to the new Facebook page. So there's a couple of ways to get to it. I'll get Facebook sorted out uh, soon, hopefully. But, you know, get on me on social media. Send me some stories. If you got any questions, let me know. That is where I am at. And I would also love to ask, like I always do, if you can, please leave a rating and review on your pod app of choice, pod catcher, whatever you call it, especially if it's iTunes. Uh, that helps the show out tremendously. And uh, if you can, just tell a friend and get uh, someone else to listen to the show. But thank you for supporting it in any way you can, whether it's through Patreon, whether it's through buying some merch, or rather it's through word of mouth and telling people about the show. It all helps. It all comes back into the show, and I appreciate it all so much. If you are on Patreon, I usually tell you what the episode is going to be, what the backwards episode is going to be, and uh, I don't know yet for this. I was thinking about trying to do an episode on uh, old Dr. Solomon Mize, but I've done a couple of cursory kind of Google searches, and I haven't really dug up a lot of dirt, a lot of info on the guy, so I don't think I'm going to be able to make an episode of that. I think I'm just going to try and search and try to find a couple more ye old kind of early 1800s ghost stories to share in the same vein as uh, the Bell Witch story. So uh, that's it. That is all that I have. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Uh, Until next episode, which we will continue the discussion on the Bell Witch, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours?